0: This is a recording from a sermon from Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit lightsandiego.com. A quick quick poll. Do we have any people in this room where you consider yourself a sensitive person? Don't be ashamed, guys, too. I mean, like, you're sensitive. Any people who are like, you just don't get it. Like, you're not, compassion's not your gifting. You're super, like, straight. Chris, don't be ashamed. <laughs> They're like, oh, my gosh, I don't feel. Um, I, I, I'm surrounded by feelers and really sensitive uh, people, which which is, is a gift. Jen told me there's a whole TED Talk about how sensitive people are a gift to the world. So I, I believe it. It's, it's on TED Talk. So, um, but. <laughs> But can we also agree there is such a there's such a thing as far as being too sensitive? Could that could that be a possibility that there, yeah. you know, because I think that there might be. Thank you, Luke. Um I think I may have encountered it. So my uh, Zoe, who's almost 10 years old, she's just the sweetest, most compassionate heart. And, and so she, which means if she gets hurt physically, emotionally, spiritually, I mean it's um she like lets you know about it, right? Like She asks for crutches about once a week for something, like a stubbed toe, a scraped knee. Like, it's for sure. We got to go to the hospital for this one. Uh, And so this week, I got to a new level, and I just, I felt so bad because she came up just like with like, just longing for sympathy, and I just laughed at her, just like to her face. And so I told her I was laughing about something else. Totally lied. I'm sorry. But she came out, she came out from school, and she has like her hand like wrapped in this, um, this like ace band and stuff like that. And, and my younger daughter's Jubilee and Vienna run to the car and they're like, Dad, Zoe's got a cast. I'm like, Oh, what? What happened? And I look, and she just, you know, limps with an arm, you know, like if she could. She walks in, I'm like, So, what, what happened to your wrist? And she's like, I was doing yoga <laughs> and I lost it. I was like, How do you? Hurt your wrist doing yoga. It is, like, the least contact activity ever. You're stretching. How do you how do you hurt yourself? And I'm like, well, show me the pose. And she literally just, like, laid face down on the floor. I'm like, how does that work? Like, how did you get her doing that? And um, and so it was so bad that the next day, she had to wear it all day, and the next day she had to, the nurse had to remove it because it was that severe. So we will be praying for my daughter for her wrist to heal. So... Oh, it happened. Your prayers have worked. Um, anyways, uh, I, but what what's interesting is as I've been around Zoe and Jen and, and like these beautiful, sensitive hearts, I've, it's made me realize that there are things that should move my heart that don't. It's revealed that there are things that and there are things that get me emotional. I'm not afraid to cry every once in a while, but. It also lets me know that there are certain things that I have a tendency to not feel to grow numb to. And some of those things are fine, but what I want to talk to you about tonight is we're going to be talking about really the foundation of our faith, right? We're talking about grace. We're talking about Jesus' love, interrupting our sin. I mean, like foundational stuff. But here's, here's the temptation, and there's a the temptation for me as I was studying this week, is because we've heard information before, the information stops having transformation. The scripture is so clear that the gospel, which is what we're talking about tonight, should never, ever lose its ability to shape and mold our hearts. And, and so as much as I've prepared and I long to preach a message that would minister to your heart, beyond the message, I pray that the reality of the gospel reaches into your heart and it moves you. And this is so much more than information, but it, it goes and forms who we are. And I was reminded of it this week as a friend of mine just finished his book and he sent it to me before, his, his editor, and he said, hey, would you just read through this short book, but it's about his life. It's how he went from uh, being a, really in a dark space, being addicted to, to drugs, the Lord meeting him, rescuing him, and him being delivered from it, and, and it was this powerful, powerful story. And uh, and I got to have lunch with him after, um, later on that week, and so I'm sitting down with, with my friend, and he's telling me, and this is one thing I'm realizing, is The moment that Jesus rescued him from drugs was years ago, like well over a decade ago. And he talks about it like it happened yesterday. I mean, he's just with thankfulness. I mean, in the in the pages of his book, it's just seeping with gratitude and awe and wonder about God's love that reaches into the darkness and brings redemption. I mean, it was amazing. And I'm sitting in this guy in London, everything out of his mouth is just like, I shouldn't be here if it wasn't for God's grace. I shouldn't even be alive if it wasn't for God. And, he just, and he's talking to me about how amazing the love of God is while I'm spending hours of my week studying about it, and I'm, and it doesn't even hit me the same way. And I've and it's revealed that there's something in me that is broken. That because this is something that I've learned about and I've been I've been in awe about, I've taught about, I've taught with passion, that somehow in my human condition. I can move away from the power of it. That it, that it moves me at a, at a core level. So my prayer tonight is that we would be like my friend. That the minute that Jesus rescued us with his grace would be as if it happened yesterday. And if it hasn't happened yet, that it happened tonight. But that we would never graduate from the gospel. We would never move on past the amazing love and the grace of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul's getting at Tonight in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. So just, just I'm going to lay this out. Here's kind of our outline for tonight that we're going to be doing. Uh, just three points, three goals that I hope that we can all, all get. Number one, the first couple of verses we're going to be talking about how we can awaken to the weight of our need. Awaken to the weight of our need for a Savior, our own brokenness. And the second thing we're talking about is receive the wonder of His grace. There's, there's, His grace is so outlandish and amazing and profound and powerful, it should cause wonder in us that never ends. And the third thing is that the understanding of God's grace and love would move us into work and move us to action, the action and the purpose that He set out for us. So that's kind of where we're going tonight. Um, and so, but before we dive into the text, I wanted just to remind us, if you weren't here last week, of where we are. So There is this this man 2,000 years ago who became a Christian killer to a follower of Jesus through a radical conversion. His name was Saul and then turned to Paul. And Paul ended up being the most prolific church planter that ever was. Planted church after church after church, wrote letters to these churches. Those letters take up about a third of our New Testament. And this is one of those letters he's writing to a church he planted about 10 years prior in a town called Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a uh, was a metropolitan, uh, thriving city. It was the second biggest city in the ancient world next to Rome. Lots of money and influence and art and and. Um, and philosophy and they worship this this false god named Artemis who was her temple was right there in the middle of Ephesus and so you, you can imagine an LA or a New York type of city and Paul writes to this little baby church or series of churches about 20 30 people meeting in homes throughout the city and this letter would have been read to them and he begins his letter just over the top talking about the goodness of God that you've been chosen and you've been adopted and that you are now God's inheritance and he's res- giving you the resurrection power of Jesus I mean if you read chapter 1 it is absolutely unbelievable we've talked about it the last like 3 or 4 weeks because it's that powerful just one chapter of scripture it's so good and we didn't even scratch the surface you guys and so, and so Paul's ending this kind of train of thought. And mid sentence, we see a chapter break, right? From chapter one to chapter two. But there should not be a chapter break there because this is mid thought. As he's talking about just how good God is, he interrupts it with this thought. But don't forget where you came from, don't forget who you were before Christ. So this is not like a, a new, even though this is a new sermon, this is not a new thought for Paul. This is continuing, right? We just talked about this really lofty, beautiful reality that we have in Christ. But he says, but don't you stop remembering where you were before Christ found you. This is where we're going to find ourselves tonight. This is point number one, is awakening to the weight of our needs. So Ephesians chapter two, verse one says this, as for you... Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So in these first three verses, Paul just lays out this heavy reality of what we call sin. Now, sin's kind of a churchy word. It's kind of a Christian word. We don't use that a lot outside of church, you know. You don't go to your friend at the water cooler and say, so, how's sin in your life? You know, it's it's just not in our vocabulary outside of church. So we have to kind of take a step back. We have to unpack, well, what is he talking about? when he talks about sin. Because it's pretty clear here that at one time, everyone, you and me, everyone he's writing to, were living in this world, in this realm of sin, that these desires we had in us were, were chasing. We're chasing these desires in our heart that could not be fulfilled. And, and, and Paul writes this thing, and he talks about this, this brokenness that exists. And so the first thing we have to do, we're going to try and do two, three things here in order to awaken the weight of our need. The first one is understanding that sin is different than we thought. The second thing we're talking about is sin is worse than we thought. And lastly, sin is bigger than we thought. And so let's we'll kind of go through these here just for to understand just the weight of what Paul is talking here. The first one, sin's different than you and I probably think of when we think of sin. When you think of sin, you think of like, oh, you know, that, that person who committed adultery, or they robbed a bank, or they sold drugs, or they did these, these blatant, immoral things. But that's not exactly what Paul's talking about here, and it's not really what the Greek word implies that he uses here. This Greek word, hamartia, Is the most common word used for sin in the Greek language. And all it means is this, missed the mark. It's a term most commonly used for archery when they don't hit their target. And so when Paul says, all of you were dead in your missing of the mark, meaning that that missing of the mark, it's it's a casual phrase. Everyone does it. I mean, if you were to ask us, like, okay, who's a sinner in this room? You might be like, uh, you know. But if you're like, well, who's missed the mark this week? Who's missed the mark today? I mean, everyone would be like, oh, yeah, all the time. I've talked with people, and they're just like, oh, I don't, I don't sin. I'm not a sinner. Um, and what that tells me is, is their understanding of the idea of sin is warped. Because the biblical understanding of sin is you're not living up to your potential like the God potential, right? His design for you because every artist, every engineer, every craftsman designs something for a purpose. And we have craftsmen sitting in the room right now and some of you guys design art or you design clothes or you design uh, buildings. And when you design those things, there is an intent behind it. And so when we sin, we are looking at the designer and the maker and we are living outside of its original intent. We're not meeting its purpose. And that's all that, that sin is. And by that definition, it means that we are we're coming up short to our potential. I love Mike Erie, who's a pastor, says this. Sin means that we are always indulging and never satisfying. love that definition. Sin is when we're chasing things that never truly satisfy our soul. It doesn't mean... <clears throat> Again, it doesn't mean that you have to be going doing these horrific acts. It just means you're not feeding or going to the things that actually matter in your life. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it, talking about our sinful desires. He says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. Man, I love C.S. Lewis for the win once again. Right? I mean, he just said we're far too easily. All sin is you are far too easily pleased. Right? You, you want, you choose what you want more than what you need. That's all of us. Every single one of us, and as he's writing this, and he just says, every one of us, before Jesus entered into our lives, this is how we lived. But not only is sin different than we thought, sin is actually worse than we thought. Sin's worse than we thought. So when I... When I when Jesus got a hold of my life, I was in junior high, and it was a pivotal moment in my life. I, and some I was telling some the other day, and they kind of laughed at me because they couldn't imagine it. But in junior high, I was in all sorts of trouble. I was getting, um, I got kicked out of my junior high. I was getting in tons of fights, like fist fights, and uh, and so the principal sat down with my mom and I, and she's and the principal said, if you don't take him out of school, we're going to have to expel him. So on the drive home, my mom looks at me and she says, do you want to be homeschooled? And I was like, yes. Uh, And so I started, um, at that moment, I started leaving kind of that duplicit life I was living and started living for the Lord. And all of my friends started looking at me like, look at that weird Christian guy. Oh, you're Mr. Holy now. And And I remember feeling like, man, I'm just totally alone. Like, oh, I feel like like I'm too good for you. But what's so funny is then I started being homeschooled and I went to these homeschool groups where, where some of these people were so sheltered and so protected that I felt like the biggest sinner ever for not doing anything wrong. And I was like, who am I? Like, am I sinful or not? Because according to my school friends, I'm a saint, and according to the homeschool cohort, um, I'm like the devil like' I don't, I don't know where I land and because the reality is what happened to me in junior high we do all the time. We immediately gauge the sin in our life based on the people around us. I mean correct me if I'm wrong we look at someone else and I'm like well, I'm not that bad Or maybe you're the person who's trapped in guilt and shame and you all you do is look around and say I'll never be that good but we judge, The magnitude and the weight of our sin through the lens of comparison rather than scripture. But scripture never tells you, don't look at the person next to you to figure out if you're sinful, because if that's the case, you could always find a reason to feel like you're great, and you can always find a reason to feel like you're horrible. You see, scripture gives us one standard and one lens to look at when it comes to your sin, and it is not other people, it is a holy God. My friends, when you begin to start looking into the face of a holy God, your sin gets way worse. Because there, you, you can totally find people who are doing worse things than you, but when you stand before a holy God, and it's not because of how bad you are, it's because of how good he is. When you get a glimpse of his goodness, it happens all throughout Scripture, I, my, one of my favorites is in, a, in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah the prophet. I mean, he's a prophet, right? He, he's like a preacher on steroids, right? Like he's literally the mouthpiece of God for a nation, feeling pretty good about himself. And he has this moment where he encounters God, not just like in like, a, a, like I, oh, I feel the presence of God. No, like he's in heaven, in the throne room, and it's so epic that the, the train of this robe is filling the entire temple, which in that culture, your robe meant your authority. So his authority is filling the throne room of heaven. When he speaks, the very threshold, the pillars of heaven are shaking. There are these angelic creatures shouting out back and forth to each other, holy. And Isaiah becomes says he becomes undone. And this prophet, the guy who's, the, who's probably more moral than anyone in Israel, looked at this God, and I quote, Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. Because Isaiah stopped looking at people when he saw a God who was so significantly more holy than he could ever imagine, and he was undone. I love how A.W. Tozer talks about the significance of, of knowing what it's like to see God high and lifted up, what it does to the gospel. This is what he says. He says, the gospel can lift this destroying burden from the mind, get beauty for ashes and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, but unless the weight of the burden is felt, the gospel can mean nothing to man. And until he sees a vision of God high and lifted up, there will be no woe and no burden. I love this last line. Low views of God destroy the gospel for all who hold them. So, I mean, stick with me here. If you're starting to feel like, uh, like, why are you making me feel guilty? This is not the point, okay? God's not here to make you feel guilty. I'm not here to make you feel guilty. I'm trying to, to, for you to understand how holy God is. Because when we have a low view of God, it destroys the gospel. And just an just analogy, right? Like if God is not that holy, then his love doesn't have to travel that far of a distance. But the holier God is, the greater the sacrifice he had to make to get you back. So feel the weight of your sin. Feel, feel it. It's not. To, it shouldn't make you feel grief. Because remember the first line of this verse? It says... For you were dead. You were. This is a past tense statement. This is all of us. Apart from Christ, when we see God, which we all will one day, if you are not in Christ, the weight of this sin is overwhelming. But what's amazing about this passage we're about to get to, this this is past tense. When you were. This is something that happened that he rescued you from. But the problem is, and what I was getting at when I was telling the story of my friend this week, is when I don't see the holiness of God, it's so easy for me to fall into the thing of like, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for what Jesus has done, but I'm not desperate for it. Lord, would you help me be hopelessly, desperately in need of your rescuing power all the time? And that only happens when we see God high and lifted up. So sin is different than we thought. It's worse than we thought, but it's also bigger than we thought. And then we're going to move on. So if you're just like, uh, move on, last thing. Sin is bigger than we thought. And this is what I mean with that. A lot of times when we think about sin, we immediately start thinking about your own personal individualized morality. That is a part of it, but it is not all of it. You see, sin is described as the brokenness of the world as a whole. The reason why cancer exists is because of sin. The reason why there's war is because of sin. The reason because there's adultery is because of sin. The reason why the Chargers left San Diego is because of sin, okay? All of these cosmic issues, beyond just did you think that, no, 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 no. The brokenness in our world is because of this. You can read about it on your own time, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, about how sin entered the world's really significant important. We're not going to talk about it tonight. But it changed everything. I've had a dozen conversations this week that have broken my heart. I just chatted with the lady today who found out she lost her son. It's It's sin. He didn't sin, but our world is broken because of sin. And we live in the wake of it. Sin's bigger than we thought. And it ties back into our own brokenness. Yes. I love how G.K. Chesterton puts it this way. He says, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And so this is where Paul leads us into, okay? He's, he's talking, he's like, this is so good. God is so good. He's done so much for you. And then he just, in the same breath, he says, but don't forget where you came from. You were, the, the Greek translation, it was really translated well, you were walking dead, right? They stole the name from Paul himself, right? You're a zombie, Like you were living, but you weren't alive. You were walking and moving and satisfying these cravings and never satisfied. This is who you were before Christ. Do not forget where you came from. But then verse 4 comes. Everyone say, okay, okay. Our second point tonight is receive the wonder of his grace. So listen to this, okay? So you're there in this little house church. You just heard something similar to this, and you're just like, whoa, the weight of your sin. But then verse 4 comes along, and it says this, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions which is another word for sin, it is by grace that you have been saved. Oh, what a powerful verse. I'm just going to read it one more time. It's so good, right? But because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive. Come on, Light Church, with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace. You and I and they have been saved. I mean, how good is God? And this is how good God is. I mean, this is, this is good news, but the better news is, is where Paul tells us it shows up. When love shows up is as important as how love shows up. And let me explain here. Paul's very clear to point out that this love, this grace, showed up in our lives when we were at our worst, while you were dead in your sin. And the reason why this is so powerful, and I hope you get this, is this answers what I I believe is to be the greatest fear of every single human being, and that fear is to be fully known and not fully loved. Paul right here says, God fully knows you and has fully loved you. In your sin, in in the worst space of your life, he saw you and he chose love. Chose you, adopted you, not when you cleaned yourself up and got yourself to church. It was, it was the moment that you were in your room and you locked the door and you're looking at pornography. It was the moment that you were choosing alcohol rather than facing your pain. It was the moment when you ruined that person's life with the words that you spoke. It was the moment when you enjoyed hearing that gossip about that person. God saw you in that moment and just said, I want you as you are. I fully know you. I know everything you've done, how will do. I want you. I'll read you the, the full quote by Tim Keller. It's just so good. It says this, To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. How good is that? While you were dead in your sin, he showed up and made you alive. Brought you alive and breathed life into your bones. And what what's, and so you're like, well, what, what does that mean for me? What it means is this, and I want you to get this. When God sees you now, that, the word made alive means it's the same action that happened to Jesus. When he sees you now, he sees his life. Son, I heard this this week. It was so good. It says, "What Christ is by nature, we are now becomes true of us by grace. What is true of Christ by nature becomes true of us by grace." Meaning whatever is true about Jesus, his His holiness, his righteousness, the minute he makes you alive becomes who you are. And it doesn't mean you're perfect. It means that you're still going to struggle and you're still going to fall and you're still going to miss the mark. But when the Father sees you and your relationship with God and when you stand before a holy God, he doesn't see your brokenness anymore. He sees the righteousness of his Son. And you now can stand fully alive with no fear, with boldness in your heart because of what he's done for you. And so the question is, if that's true, do you see yourself the way that God sees you now? And I'll chew on that for a second. If, verse, if verses four and five are true, if he's made you alive with Christ, he's seated you with him, if, you, if this is true of you now, do you think of yourself the same way God thinks of you? Because if you're like, I'm so glad that God thinks of me as righteous and He accepts me and forgives me and welcomes me, but you don't forgive and welcome and accept yourself, then you don't really get it. You don't fully understand what is happening. That's the second point. is it, it, It's understanding, awakening to the wonder of His grace. It's not just what God thinks about you. It's what you now, it's, your, it's what's true about you. You get to live out that reality. But it gets better. Oh, so good. How can it get better? It does. So our third point tonight is move into the work of his purpose. And let's start in verse 6. we We're going to finish out through verse 10. It says, And God, after he made us alive with Christ, says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved. There it is again, through faith. And this, Paul's driving this home. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It gets better. Not only does God see us in all of ourselves, all of our brokenness, all of our darkness, chooses us, makes us alive. But then according to this, it says, he seats us in the heavenly realms with Christ. Guess what that means? We're in charge. The church is in charge. That the gift that happened at the cross was not just for you to feel better about yourself. It wasn't even for you just to get to heaven someday. It was for you to regain your rightful place within the world to help govern and bring about the kingdom of God here and now. This is not a a future tense thing. This is right now. He's seated you right now in the heavenly realms, meaning there are things happening all around us we can't see in the spiritual realm, and you have authority of it. This is why I think it's so sinister how much the enemy tries to get his church not to pray because he knows more than we do how much power we've been given. And it freaks him out, and we are lulled to sleep and Paul's waking up this church in Ephesus, and I pray the Spirit wakes us up as this new community here in Encinitas. And what God has done for us doesn't just stop with us feeling good that we are saved or we've been made alive, but no, we have work to do. He set us up in the heavenly realms with authority that we get to walk in every single day, that that love in which he loved us, we get to go love other people with that same kind of love, which changes the world. And he moves on and he begins to start talking about how you are God's handiwork. What a a beautiful statement. This Greek word is the Greek word poema. It's only used twice in all the New Testament. One in Romans one twenty, and one right here. And this word is where we get our word poetry, but it was anything that was painstakingly handcrafted with intent for a purpose. And this is the word that Paul uses for your new destiny in Christ. He says, you are his poema, you are his masterpiece, and you have been built for a purpose. There are good works he planned in advance for you to do. Let's get busy. Let's go do them. Let's step into this new reality that because of his rescuing power, because of his grace, not anything we did, we now get to go and live our lives pressing into this new destiny that we get to walk in, this new authority we get to walk in that he planned way before you even existed. And what powerful words. You are I love that new living translation translates You're his masterpiece. You're his best work we miss it, I think about how often we find ourselves as, as followers of Jesus feeling like a victim in the world that's, that's overtaking us. This is not the narrative Paul's describing. And keep in mind, this is when there's maybe, what, a few hundred Christians in Ephesus with millions of pagan People all around them. And you know what he tells them? You're in charge. You're not the victim. You're seated next to Christ. You're his masterpiece. You're his best work. And he's prepared good works for you to go and do them. But notice the sequence. He doesn't say go do good works to be put in charge to be brought into Christ, but because he saved you, now you get to go and step into them. So the question is, what are they? What are your good works that he's prepared to advance? And, and the answer is, I, I I don't know, but I bet you, you do, and I bet the Holy Spirit would love to reveal that to you more and more every day, and it may not look like you get this podcast that gets millions of listeners, it might not look like you become the CEO of your company. Maybe it looks like you're a mom and you clean off the nose of your child again and as you do, you pray a blessing over them and you disciple them in the care and the love and the mercy of God. Maybe it looks like for you showing up at your job tomorrow, clocking in and being the only one not gossiping about your boss. Maybe for you, it's going and taking care of your elderly family member who doesn't even remember that you're doing it, but you're doing it because you've been so moved by the love of God that you can't help it. Listen, when the church Starts to engage these powerful, subversive acts of love and service, the world around us changes. But don't for a second think that we now fall into the same system as the world does. This is not climbing the kingdom ladder. If there's a kingdom ladder, it's one you climb down. And when we get to the bottom, it's where Jesus lived. these are the good works he's prepared in advance for us to do but once again as we as we close now I'm going to invite Kevin to come back up these good works this purpose his purpose he's called into only happen when two things happen one you recognize where you once were and don't forget it and secondly You rejoice in the reality that you have been made alive in Christ. You are new. The old is gone. The new has come. What is true of Christ by nature is now true of you by grace. Can you bow your heads with me?